Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. My name is Joe Ziz, and today our text will be the first 13 verses of the second chapter of James. If you'd like to grab your Bibles, you can read along or follow as the verses will be on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Gracious Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for your presence in this place. Father, we pray that we would listen to understand and that you would bring clarity in your word, that you would speak to us. And Father, we pray that we also would have the courage to act and to apply your word in our lives. Father, that we trust that 
the blessing is in the obedience to your word and not just the hearing of it. So give us clarity and give us courage and speak through Ken as he shares your message this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Ken, and I am the campus pastor in Prescott Valley. So I want to give a big shout out to all of you who are joining us at Glassford Hill Middle School. Thank you for doing so. And for others who are online, whenever, wherever you are doing so, uh, thank you. And come see us in person, whether it's in Prescott Valley or join us here at the Prescott campus. Thank you guys for braving the cold. A little dark this morning. It was colder now than when I got up and got here at six something. Uh, it's not fun. But let's get into the message today, right? We are doing James. Oh, I'm not on the right page of my notes. Here we go. Okay. This is week four of James, and this series, it's called Beyond Belief, right? The whole idea of Beyond Belief is what we wanted to be able to say this, which is what James takes five chapters to say, that, that what we believe about Jesus needs to be more than an exercise in mental ascent and believing facts or stories or history, that what we believe about Jesus should prompt us to live a certain way. If you could sum up the book of James, his whole thesis is this, that what we believe should compel us to live how Jesus modeled and taught. That's the whole book in a sentence. And what we'll see in the text today is that there's a major difference between how the faithful religious people in the days of Jesus and the days that James was written, how they lived. There's a major difference between how their religious leaders lived compared to how Jesus lived and compare that to what God expects of us. So they believed the right things, but how they lived was different than what Jesus modeled and taught and what Jesus expected. So what we're going to do today is we're going to start with the last verse. We're going to start with where we left off last week. Before we get into chapter two, we end with chapter one. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And this is what I want to focus on here, is being polluted by the world. The next, the whole chapter two, this is his whole point about don't be polluted by the world, and we're going to get half of chapter two done today. We understand what polluted is, right? I have something that's clean, it's pure, and then it gets dirtied, and it's sullied, and it's not what it should be. And I could make it work, but it's not really what I want. But what's the world? We don't have the time to go through scriptures, explain what the world is, tune into the podcast on Tuesday. Maybe we'll get into it by then. Uh, but the world, what is the world? What does the world value? The world values power, right? Might makes right. The world values appearance, Proverbs say that violent men and beautiful women get rich. The world values leverage. Jesus values love and service, mercy, compassion. So the way of the world and the way of Jesus are diametrically opposed to one another. And James is saying, hey, we don't want to be polluted by the world. We need to be different than the world. And there are many things James could tell us about what it means to be polluted by the world, by living by the values of this world. He could go into lust or drunkenness. He could go into adultery, violence, 
greed, sexual misconduct. He could address a whole list of behaviors that church people would find reprehensible, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? What does he say that pollution from the world looks like? What is pollution of the world? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, so he's talking to the Christians, to you and me, we must not show favoritism. That seems like an odd thing to say that is tied to being polluted by the world. And when you see favoritism, don't think preferences. I like my steak medium rare, or I like it well done. My sleep number is different than my spouse's sleep number. These are preferences. Chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, skinny jeans, ripped jeans. The toppings on your pizza might be, there could be sin involved with that, right? Meat or veggies. But there's nothing wrong with preferences. There is nothing wrong with preferring your spouse over all others, and that's actually probably a pretty good idea because it'll keep you out of trouble. So when you see this, don't think preferences, because I think that's where we go. Don't think preferences. Think about discriminating against people. Think disparaging or prejudicing people. Think making value judgments about people who are made in the image of God. Don't do that. Don't make value judgments about people who are different than you. And we're all guilty of it. Not one of us has not done this or doesn't currently do it, myself included. And just let me give you some for instances. What do you do? What would you think? What value judgment would you make when you see the older guy driving his midlife crisis car and his passenger is a young lady, half his age, and it's certainly not his daughter, right? You, you make a judgment. And then you judge the gold digger sitting next to him, right? That's what we do. We'd be like, man, we'll judge. We'll make a value judgment about the single mother on welfare. We think she's got too many kids and there's too many dads. And we make a value judgment with no regard for how she got there. How about anyone with a face tattoo? Or the guy who has more money than we think he needs? Ladies, You'll judge the woman who's showing off her assets. Gentlemen, you will too, but you do it for different reasons. Okay. We judge the parent who has a kid that's out of control. We'll make a value judgment about the teenager who gets busted by the cops. Every day, we make value judgments about people based on where they live, what they do for a living, how they vote, what they drive, what bumper stickers they put on what they drive. We are all guilty of disparaging people, prejudicing them, making value judgments of them. None of us get off the hook. So know this, especially if you would count yourself as a believer, James is talking to you and me. He's not just talking to them. So he gives us a, for instance, don't show favoritism. And now I'm going to tell you, here's an, so he's going to give us an example. And this example is not the be all end all. This is not only don't show favoritism in this situation. Don't show favoritism in general. Here's his example. Suppose a man comes into your meeting right here. So think about this. What would I do if someone who I would make a, a negative value judgment about would walk into this meeting and sit next to me? So in his example, they come into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the problem with this special attention, it's not being favor, like honoring one another, but it's doing it while discriminating against someone else. And the terms James uses are, they make you sit up straight, discriminating, judges, evil thoughts, not just a negative opinion of someone. He's saying it's evil to think this way. And again, the, the example is rich over poor, but the concept is universal. We don't do this. We don't discriminate. If we do, we're showing that we're polluted by the world. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to uh, explore the rest of James' example, because he goes on a little more about this. And then we're going to expand it for our own application. Like, what would he say to us in our time, in our community, in our culture? And as he continues the correction of their thinking and their behavior, James does two things. The first thing he does is he reminds them of what God values. And he highlights their folly in valuing the rich over the poor or valuing anyone over another. Here's what he goes in verse five. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? As a matter of fact, that's exactly That's exactly what God has done. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, looking at his disciples, so believers. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's telling his poor followers that you will be blessed and honored by God. But the Christians in James' context were not doing that. What were they doing? You have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? James is saying, look, not only do who and what you value differ from who and what God values, they're in opposition to each other. Like God values something more than what you, something greater than what you, you value the things that God does not value. God will bless the poor because he holds them in high regard because their life is hard. He's compassionate, he is kind. Now that being said, I need to be clear that there is no inherent value in being wealthy and no inherent virtue in being poor. There are wonderful, generous rich people and there are wonderful, generous poor people. There are rotten, greedy rich people and there are rotten and greedy poor people. God does not want us to favor one over the other. As a matter of fact, in the book of Leviticus, which is the law given uh, thousands of years before this is written, God gives a command on how to deal with the rich and the poor. What does he say? Do not pervert justice. So this, do not show partiality. Some of your Bibles, are this translation said favoritism for James. Some say partiality. Same thing. Do not show partiality to who? To the poor. So in James, it said, don't show partiality to the rich. Here he's saying, don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. We're all gonna make value judgments, but let's not do it on appearances and let's be okay with people who are different than us. God does not want us to favor one over the other. 
Don't have these kind of distinctions. Be fair. So in James' example, the rich person is welcomed into the fold. The poor person, yeah, you can come, but we really don't want your kind here. Like, you just sit over there. This, these seats are for the important people. Yeah, there's a spot for you in the back. And there's some real irony that James is warning Jewish Christians not to show favoritism because it was baked into their culture. It was a common practice to show favoritism. So I want to give you a few examples. It was so baked in that even people who weren't Jewish knew that Jews should not associate with people who aren't Jewish. Here's an example from Jesus's ministry. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water at a well, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's shocked that he would talk to her. He's supposed to know better. Faithful, religious people, you don't do this. We're not friends. Jesus didn't hesitate, right? He violated the social and religious norms of his people and of his day. So the question is, for a people who were commanded not to discriminate, how did this become baked into the culture? How did partiality, favoritism, and discrimination be just in the fabric of their faith? Well, for starters, it was modeled by their religious leaders. So their equivalent of their pastors and teachers, they modeled this behavior. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Matthew was a tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So to be a tax collector, to be a Jewish tax collector means you work for Rome. So this is like you're having Benedict Arnold in your fold. Like this dude's a traitor. We don't want nothing to do with this guy. So he's a tax collector to be ostracized. And Jesus is having with tax collectors and other sinners. Some Bibles translate this notorious sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? Doesn't he know any better? Yeah, Jesus knew better. He knew better than all of them, and he knows better than all of us. And not only would Jesus have meals with people, the unsavory of the, those that the religious community did not like, not only would he have meals with them, but he would be intimate, like real special moments. He was up close and personal. They didn't just get to sit next to him. He didn't just tolerate them. So here, Jesus is at the tax collector's house. The next example, Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. So Jesus would associate with the, the super religious and the irreligious. When one of the Pharisees, a guy named Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, if, just for a moment, think about this. If you're in the poor community or the people who have been ostracized by the religious community and you see Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, you're like, there's our guy. Like, oh my gosh, finally, someone, a man of the people. And then you turn around and he's eating with the Pharisees. Imagine how disappointed you are. Like, oh, he is not what I thought. He's just going to be like one of these dudes. He's just going to eat with them and be like them. And... But that's not how Jesus rolls. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Just imagine how gentle and how intimate and how touching this scene must have been. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them, his dirty feet, and poured perfume on them. Like she's pouring her heart out. She is just desperate for something, anything. She knows what these religious men have isn't helping her, but she knows Jesus has got something. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What a contrast between the thoughts and the behavior of Jesus and the behavior of the one, the Pharisee, with all the Bible knowledge, who knew the law, who knew the word, the way they treat people, it couldn't be any more different. And what's amazing is how Jesus treats Simon in this, right? He's gentle with this woman. He welcomes her in. He knows what Simon's thinking. And as the story goes on, Jesus starts talking to Simon. He's like, Simon, let me tell you a story. And he doesn't rebuke Simon. He doesn't blast him. He he doesn't come down on him. He just says, yes, this woman, she's broken. Her sins, they are many and they're forgiven. Look what she's done for me. She's washed my feet with her tears. You, You haven't done a thing. You let me into your house, okay, probably so you can get something out of it. Like, I don't know what that, all that conversation was like, but so different, so different, so gentle with both of them. And I see my own sin in this. I see my own sin when I see this. Because I know I would respond like Jesus did with the woman, because I have responded like that. As a very young Christian, I'll never forget this showed me something about what it means to be a follow, to tell people you're a Christian, the impact it has. Take a coworker home from work. This is a student at ASU. So I take him, he lived on Van Buren Street. So if you know Phoenix, that's where the drugs and the prostitutes are. And he lived there with his wife and their daughter in a, basically a no-tell motel, right? A little like, you don't want to be there. And he needed a ride. I gave him a ride home, meet his family. And someone comes up and they're like, oh, you have a car? I'm like, yeah, doesn't, doesn't everybody have a car, right? I'm in the poor part of town. And this lady said, can you give me a ride? And first I'm like, I'm a young Christian. And I'm like, probably not. I don't think I should be alone with a woman I'm not related to. I just, I'm in this season of life. And she's like, oh, it's over. I said, where is it? Oh, it's two blocks away. I'm like, it's two blocks. Just go for a walk. I'm, and then she proceeds to proposition me. She's like, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And I said, no, 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 I am a Christian. I don't do that. And everything about her countenance and her demeanor changed instantly. Like she was like an exhale. She says, you're a Christian. And she embraced me like someone who just lost a loved one. And she starts kissing my head and my face and all over. Like she was clinging on. She's trying to cling to Jesus. I'm just this kid that said, I'm a Christian. And it was, it was, wow. And I knew right then that I, with Jesus, we have something so important and so special that the world is in desperate need of. So I know I would respond like Jesus did to her, but I would not respond like Jesus did to Simon. I'd be blasting Simon. I'd be like, you're a dirtbag. You think you're special. You're, so I'd feel great about my, my response to her and I would feel great 
in my sin with my response to Simon. And I'd be wrong, just as wrong if I'm, because I'm judging him. He's jacked up too. He needs help too. As it relates to this whole thing of favoritism, the religious community of Jesus' day and the world were no different. They discriminated. And not only did they demonstrate and model this kind of favoritism, they taught it. They taught this type of discrimination. And we learn this from Peter. Peter is one of Jesus's 12 apostles and he would not take the gospel of Jesus to non-Jews. He would not go to the Gentiles until God gave him a vision and told him to go. This very special vision that you need to go. And so he does. And here's Peter telling Gentiles about the vision. He, Peter, said to them, to these Gentiles, Roman soldier, you are well aware that it is against our law, against our law, for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, which is a real rude thing to say when you're in someone's house. Like, I'm not supposed to be in your dirty joint. Like, what is he? He's not very PC. He's not smooth. But this, against our law, you are well aware, you, you non-Jews, you Gentiles, you know that it's against our law. But here's the thing. It was not against their law. Read the law from Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's not there. What is there is you don't make alliances with the Gentiles and you don't intermarry with the Gentiles. You don't do that. And somewhere along the line, the religious leaders in their community that morphed into, you don't even talk to those dirty people. You keep your distance. You come out and you stay, you don't even talk to them. They knew their Bible, but they misunderstood the heart of the God who gave it. And don't we do that too? Like, isn't that our tendency? that we draw lines about who is welcome into the community and who's, yeah, you can come, but we don't like your kind here. That's the way of the world. And it is also the product of a prideful, self-righteous religious culture that forgets who we are without Jesus. Jesus never hesitated to engage with the super religious, if you will, those in the community and those who were far from God or not, or were in the community of God, but weren't welcomed by the community of God. He went to the, he spoke to Samaritans, went to the home of the Romans. He touched, talked to soldiers, touched leopards, ate with tax collectors. I said leopards, lepers. Uh, ate with tax collectors, prostitutes, Pharisees. Jesus was remarkably different from his religious culture. So we go back to his brother James. And this whole time, James, we read, James is blasting his flamethrower at the church. He doesn't hold back. He's telling us to move beyond belief. So he takes us to a solution to this problem of discrimination, but he still singes us pretty good in the process of getting to the solution. Let's see what he says. If, you always gotta pay attention, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The juxtaposition of these two verses together, I find it to be very helpful. He's like, we can't do both. We can't love our neighbors and simultaneously show favoritism. We'll try. 
we'll deceive ourselves that we can do that. That we will love the neighbor who is like me, who votes like me, thinks like me, operates like me, and then I'll speak ill, I'll show favoritism for them, and I'll speak ill of people who are not like me in the same breath. This love your neighbor is really, we are supposed to love everyone, but keep in mind, James is talking to the church. He is telling the church to love your neighbor who comes into your gatherings, right? Suppose a man comes into your gathering. So what James is telling them to do, he's telling us to do as well. All types of people should feel welcomed in this gathering. They should be able to sit down next to you and feel comfortable. Now, let me be clear that love your neighbor and making people feel comfortable never means we condone people's sin. The Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Jesus calls people out of sin. Everybody felt welcome to Jesus. His harshest critics and the and woman who lived a sinful life, right? You fill in the blank. She felt comfortable enough to come right up to him. And Jesus called people out of sin. He didn't love them and let them stay in it. He called them out of it. But James makes this example of rich and poor. I think it would benefit us if I made an example for our context. And it could be a politically correct example, right? I could say, would, you, would, would your Democrat neighbor and your Republican neighbor, are they both welcomed in here? Is your atheist neighbor and your Christian neighbor, are they both welcomed in here? But that wouldn't be really helpful to go the PC route. Right? We're a very socially and politically conservative community. So if James was writing this letter to our church or to you or me personally, what are the buttons that he would push to make us notice? So imagine a person walks into your gathering. Would they be welcome if they were a refugee from, say, California? (laughs) You laugh because you know it's true. It's true that they're refugees, and it's true that they are not typically welcomed in Prescott. Right? Like, I will talk to people in church. And like, oh, we're just new to town. We found the church. I go, where are you from? And this is the response. (laughs) Like, fine, deal with that. They're going to live with that in the community at large, but they shouldn't deal with that in here. You're from California. Good. God loves Californians too. Like, we welcome. Let's like, come on in. What if someone came into the room and sat next to you and they smell like they just had, uh, they just, they smell like a pack of Marlboros or they smell like they had beer for breakfast. Are they, are you going to move over? Are you going to get up and go to the back? Are you going to move your seat? Are you going to make sure you hightail it out right after service? You don't want to talk to them? What if someone came in here and they had a Joe Biden t-shirt on? There, I'm just, I'm not bringing that up for no reason. Let's just put it that way. What if someone came in, their car had a defund the police bumper sticker? I'm not telling you you have to agree, but would they be welcome? How would you treat that person? You might think what you think about their beliefs, their positions, their politics, okay, Would you let a Christian who doesn't believe like you do about every detail, would they be welcome to sit next to you? Are you going to go, I'm going somewhere else. Oh, we let those kind of people in here to believe like that? 
I'm out. We do these things. The most loving thing we can do is to show love to people who aren't like us, who aren't like you, who don't think like you, believe like you, act like you. Because we all want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And none of us are going to hear it if we're not welcome in the room. Like we need to be in the room. We need to be in the community. So we love our neighbor. There are no exceptions. And why should we do that? Here comes James and the flamethrower. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Well, good. Thank God for Jesus. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. We are not dealing with scales of justice. Like if the good stuff I do can just outweigh the bad. No, it's not like that. Oh, I did a bad thing. Boom, it's done. Done. You're a lawbreaker. Guilty. No one can do that. No one can out. That's why we have Jesus. So we don't have to do scales of justice. We are all guilty as charged. So what do we do about it? Well, James tells us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, at first blush, you see this, and it's easy to be like, oh, good. Yes, I am going to be judged by a law that gives freedom, whatever that is. I'm going to be judged, and I'm going to be given freedom. Well, hold your horses. Don't get excited yet. His finger's still on the trigger of the flamethrower. This is referred to in Galatians 6 as the law of Christ, which I would say is the command that Jesus gives his disciples at the end of his life in John 13. The command, the law that Jesus gives is this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, he's talking to the disciples. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we're not gonna be judged by a standard that is, that's like, oh, Jesus loves me, so all is good. Yes, it is good that Jesus loves me, but Jesus still has expectation. James warns us to speak and act as people who are commanded to love one another, regardless of our differences, our political differences, our socioeconomic differences, our racial differences. It doesn't matter. Do you love them? Read Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. When Jesus, on the day of judgment, who, you're, we're, we are all going to be asked the question, how well did you love people? Answer that question now. Because the answer to that question is of eternal importance. Why is it of internal importance? James ends with this. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone, we are included in that, who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James implores us to be merciful with one another in every interaction we have, in every moment of disagreement. You can show judgment or you can show mercy you're going to get what you give. So in that moment, when you're questioning, do I pass judgment or do I give mercy? Well, what do you want in your moment? I think it behooves us all to err on the side of mercy. And so James, this whole book, he does a very thorough job of blasting the church, 
Like the, I could not imagine what it must have been like to hear this letter for the first time, knowing like we're reading in the Bible and we can kind of distance ourselves from it. No, this letter was written to us too, like in this moment. I'll bet they felt attacked. Like they probably felt offended. Uh, they probably were felt judged. They didn't like it. Some people probably just abandoned the Jesus movement altogether. Like I am out. I'm not listening to that stuff. That's very different than my religious culture. I like the judging piece, but they needed to hear it. They needed to take action. And so James, with this attitude, he takes the flamethrower approach. But the apostle Paul, he delivers a similar message to the church in Colossae with a very different approach. James warns, right? Don't do these things. If you do these things, bad things are going to happen to you. You don't want this. Rather than Paul, rather than say, don't do these things, Paul's like, well, do these things. He paints a picture of what we ought to do and what the outcome of that is like. So I want to leave us with this passage from Colossae, what Paul says to the church. Here in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew. So those who grew up religious and those who came out of the world. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, violent, Okay, Scythian, it was a specific type of people, but at this point in time, it's basically just an insult. Slave or free, there's none of that. Christ is all, he is all that matters, and he is in all. If you are in Christ, if you are in the church, none of these differences matter. Your background, your, I don't know, who you root for in football, whatever. Like none of the, those things, who you vote for, what those things don't matter. Christ is what matters. And if someone's going to get in Christ, they got to be comfortable coming in the room first. They got to be where they could hear about Jesus and experience grace from people so they can experience grace from God. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Man, we all want that. We all want to operate this way. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What a picture, right? If we could all live like this all the time, which is not likely, but if we could, let's move in this direction. We'd have so much more joy, so much less angst, less stress, better relationships if we put on love rather than discriminating. And when we do this, when we put on love, when we treat people accordingly, we are demonstrating that what we believe has compelled us to live how Jesus modeled and taught. Let's live how Jesus modeled and taught, not how our 21st and 20th century American Christian culture and conservative culture has taught us. Let's go what Jesus taught us. And when we do this, we demonstrate that we have moved beyond belief. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have called us to move beyond belief, that we are not just to believe stuff and think we're right, but we're to love people, uh, no matter how wrong we are in the moment or how wrong they are. 
Thank you that we're called to that kind of a a life and a standard because it is freeing to let go of being right and to embrace love. I pray we would be a people who do that well, uh, all to your glory and in honor of your son. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.